It is uh, May 6th, 2014. Our message this evening is called Eaten by Worms. If you'd go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 38, we're going to be in verse 28. And um, it's a strange title, but a beautiful subject. Y'all awake out there tonight? Larissa, you with us over there? Yeah? Amen. Mario, you got a Wolverine happening. That's all right. Before we read this uh, Genesis 38, verse 28, there's a slide that I want to put on the screen, and it's because that word is in this, uh, this chapter. This is sani. Sani is a Hebrew word that means scarlet. Uh, it shows up in almost everything that's in the tabernacle. It shows up as a sign of royalty. It shows up as a sign of redemption in the scripture. It's one of the more important colors that are in the Bible. And we're going to see tonight that there are literally uh, many faceted aspects to what this color means. If definitions of words are not your thing, that's okay. You might just write down that Sani is scarlet. Uh, in Genesis 38, let us pick up in verse 28. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. When he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he na and named him Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was given the name Zerah. This is one of the first times that the color scarlet shows up in the Bible. And it's a very typical use. This scarlet thread was chosen on purpose. Sawney was chosen on purpose. The midwife wanted to mark the child that she believed would be the heir. Mark the child through whom the promise of redemption would come. And like so many, she got it wrong. She marked the one that she thought would be firstborn and then another was firstborn. Can you say that redemption is elusive? The whole world in its religions is seeking redemption. Some of them do it through hard work. Some of them do it through pain to their bodies. Some of them do it through waging war on other human beings. And the truth is, redemption can only come in the work of Jesus Christ. When you move on from Zerah and Perez, another use of it that will introduce really our larger topic is in Exodus. And in Exodus 25, we're going to read these first nine verses. Say there when you're there. Are the rest of you there? The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. If the preacher has to prompt you to give, the offering might not be worth giving. If you have to give because someone has solicited it from you, it might not be worth doing. If you have to have a promise of return, it might not be worth doing. It has always come by men and women who were prompted by God to give. Boy, that would solve a lot of Christian television programming right there, would it not? These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. Goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrance in, fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. If God showed Moses a pattern, how important is it that he follow the pattern? 
If God didn't just show him the pattern, but said, make it exactly. It's like, it, not, not similar, exactly to the way that I show you. How important is it then? When God made up his tabernacle on earth, he chose some things to go in it. Did you hear these particular words? Said blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. That's such a strange phrase. The word yarn doesn't appear in the Bible. If you're reading another translation, it may simply say scarlet. This is a combination of the word that we read a minute ago, soni, and another one called tola. Could we put that, that word on the screen? Tola is a Hebrew word that means a worm, scarlet stuff, crimson, uh, anything that has to do with a worm or scarlet. Now, why on earth would God want something that was scarlet or a worm involved in his work? How many of you just get warm feelings when you think of worms? Not very many people unless there's fishermen among us, right? There's fishermen among us. You need worms for some things. This is a really unique thing. This phrase that appears here literally says scarlet worms. But it turns out that Tola also can be translated scarlet. And since the Hebrew is redundant, since it says scarlet, scarlet, basically, they had to make a choice. What are we talking about? And since it shows up with fabrics and furnishings in the priest's garments, in the tabernacle, everywhere, they chose the word scarlet yarn in the NIV. I'd like to give you an idea that says that scarlet comes from the nature of the worm. These worms were used to produce, were used to produce scarlet. You get dyes from all kinds of things. Some come from plants. Some come from ocean creatures. Scarlet comes from a kind of worm called the tola worm. When you want to refer to the dye itself, you say sawni, and that can mean the dye or the color. When you want to refer to the color or the thing that produced it, you say tola. Now, this tola worm produces the dye. And oddly, scarlet represents redemption, but worms throughout the Bible represent something really different, usually sin or judgment. This is our first hint in all of the scripture at sin and redemption being found in exactly the same place. And only God could be so complex to do this in the personage of a worm. Turn with me to Exodus 16. You'll go back 10 chapters in your Bible. When you get to Exodus 16, say, I'm there. In Exodus 16, verse 30. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that you can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for all generations to come. How many of you are familiar with the manna? Jesus called himself the true bread that came down from heaven. Manna is a beautiful gift from God. When Jesus prayed and he said, give us this day our daily bread. It was a reference to manna and a different kind of manna that comes to us. But look at 16 and verse 20. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. There was a condition that came with the manna. When you go gather the manna, you can only gather enough for that day. It won't keep until tomorrow. You're going to have to seek God every day. None of you are going to be able to coast on your own laurels. You'll never get so righteous on Monday that you won't need his help on Tuesday. There'll never be a place in your entire life where your holiness is equal to that of God's. You know, I was talking with Brother Nick the other day, and theoretically, Nick stands much closer to the sun than A.J. does. 
AJ's not quite two feet tall yet. Nick's probably a little over six feet too. So we could say that perhaps Nick is closer to the sun than AJ. And yet when you consider the vast distance between the sun and Nick, they're not really any closer, are they? The difference is so minuscule that it's to be null and void. Well, one man might press into the holiness of God just a little further than another, but when you consider the gulf between him and us, the differences are negligible. Our God is an amazing, righteous God. And he wrote into his word things that you could spend your entire lifetime studying and barely scratch the surface of. When they gathered manna, When they were told not to, something happened to it. It says, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. This word maggot is actually tola worms. The same thing that produced the red dye, the crimson or scarlet dye, also devoured the manna when people did not obey their God. You might say sin is devouring the blessing. For this reason, when Jews began to think about tola worms and when they show up in the scripture, they both represented the scarlet and they represented the worm itself that destroyed the blessings of God. Anybody in here ever been frustrated that things seemed to be going well for a while and you messed up and did something you weren't supposed to do and your life started to fall apart? Tola worms have been eating people for a long, long time. Turn with me to the book of Jonah. When you get to Jonah, find the fourth chapter and say, I'm there, pastor. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, you can find it right there. You guys have gotten awful quiet. These people are going... Jonah, the fourth chapter, starting in the fourth verse. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out, and boy, isn't that a good question right now when you watch the news? Why does everyone feel like they have a right to be angry? Followers of a pedophile prophet are angry because somebody drew him. Nobody seems angry if you insult Jesus Christ on national television. People are angry that are being fed by the government, housed by the government, transported by the government. They're angry and they don't even know why they're angry. God asked Jonah, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow. Say provided it and made it grow. Oh man, isn't it great when God does something new in your life? When he causes it to come about, you couldn't have done it, he did it. Can any of you make anything grow? God provided it and he made it grow. Up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Everybody loves blessings, don't they? Where had Jonah just been a few days earlier? In the belly of a whale. Turns out people give whales indigestion. This whale puked him up on the shore. But after spending three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, can we say this was not the uh, exfoliating experience he wanted? This, this was not the skin treatment that people uh, go pay for? Probably the sun was beating down on him. It probably hurt. And when God eased his situation by providing a vine, oh, Jonah was happy. You know, I used to have a whole lot more hair than I do now. Now I have to wear a hat if we do roofing. And it's miserable to burn the top of your head. I'd look for somebody out there to say amen, but I understand you won't. It's miserable. Look what happens next. It's a unique scripture in the Bible. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. You ever wondered if you could be used? A worm is doing God's will. Contemplate this just for a second. It's, it's very far from our point. 
But the sun, the moon, and the stars obey our king. The oceans move according to his word. Nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight. He feeds the sparrows, the Bible says. Not one falls to the ground without him knowing and allowing it. And man is the only thing in all of the creation that has the audacity to tell God no. In the Christian world, we do it like this. We say, well, I'm going to pray about that. Who would you be praying to if God told you to do it? You're going to ask him more if you should do it? How much of his will has he already revealed that we leave undone every day? God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. There's a whole larger story here. Jonah had no problem prophesying good things. But when he was told to go prophesy to an enemy, good things, he didn't want to do it. The worm that God chose out of all the plants and animals in the kingdom, what he chose to eat that vine was a tola worm. This can't be a mistake. It can't be a mistake that in all the kingdom, phylum, class, order, genus, species, and all of the creation that we have a, a, a animal that represents sin devouring Jonah's blessing, that we have an animal that represents sin devouring manna. Could it be that even the creation itself is speaking to us that our problems don't come from God, that our problems come from sin? We're pretty sure someone else is to blame for everything that is wrong with our lives, our family, and everyone we know. And we want to change the world, but we don't start with ourselves. You know where the buck actually stops? With you. You are the biggest influence on the outcome of your own life because the King of Kings gives you the choice to obey Him or not to obey Him. And it turns out that obeying Him is life and not obeying Him is destruction. The king of Tyre goes down in the Bible as a man who disobeyed God and disobeyed God consistently. Turn with me to Isaiah 14. Say there when you were there. In Isaiah 14, starting in verse 11. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you, and worms cover you. Does that seem redundant to you? Maggots are spread out beneath you, and worms cover you. It turns out that this word for maggot is a different word than we've been using, and it literally is a bug that eats dead things. But when he says, worms cover you, this is a tola worm. Worms cover you is a way in Hebrew, in the Hebrew mind of saying, you're not just dead and decaying, you are covered in sin. Tola worms have become a symbol of sin. But ironically, they're where you get the dye that is the symbol of redemption. This gets to be so strong by the time we get to the end of the Older Testament that if you would take a look at Isaiah 66 while we're in the book, tell me if you've heard these verses before. This is the very end of the age that we're living in. And in verse 22 of chapter 66, As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm, that's a tola worm, their tola will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. When you think of a place where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched, this is what the New Testament calls Gehenna. The, the garbage dumps 
outside Jerusalem in the Hinoa Valley is where they burned garbage and there were worms all of the time. There is a part of the creation that will live with their sin in infamy and judgment forever and ever and ever. And the distinctive marker is that the sin they love so much will cover them even in the life to come. And the marker for that is the Tola worm. Look at Mark 9 with me. Let's go to the New Testament for a minute. In the New Testament, this concept stays largely the same. The words change because the New Testament has come to us in Greek. But in Mark 9, looking at verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. <clears throat> and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. And look at this descriptor. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. How radical is Jesus' teaching in opposition to sin? The distinctive marker of those who are in love with Jesus Christ is they will flee from sin. They will run from sin. They will wrap their lives in Him, like wrapping their lives in a garment. But the distinctive marker for those who are damned is that they love their sin. They hide their sin. They justify their sin. And so they will wear it for an eternity. And the symbolism that God used to display that is there would be tola worms on them Forever. Now, when we read it in Isaiah 66, it was a tola worm, but now we're in Greek. And so give us the third slide. In Greek, this is a scolex, a worm, maggot, or grub, which sometimes feeds on dead bodies, in an allusion to Isaiah 66, 24. In other words, the scola of the New Testament is the tola worm of the Old Testament. They're cognates. Do you understand what we're saying? When you read about one, you're also reading about the other. There's also a connection between it and the scarlet dye. Look at slide four. When you see the word scarlet in the New Testament, it's kokinos. And kokinos is a word that means scarlet, and it's derived from the cluster of eggs that an insect, specifically a tola worm, lays. Anytime you read that scarlet was used in the New Testament, this is what we're talking about. Almost anytime you read that there's a worm in the New Testament, the concept stayed the same all the way from Genesis 38 through the end of Revelation, where we have a beast that is covered in scarlet. With all of that in mind, let us come to our point. Turn with me to Acts 12. Are you with me tonight? Wednesdays can be difficult days. And yet, what could be better than to get into the presence of God and know that you know that the King of the universe has saved you, not just from the consequences of your sin, but from your habitual devotion to your sin. I want to tell you, if you have been taught that we are just sinners and that you can't help but sin while you're in this body, that is a lie from hell. When we do sin, it is not us sinning anymore, but sin that lives in us. Jesus Christ sets us free from the power of sin and death. You do not have to sin. You have a choice. The Holy Spirit in you will give you power over sin. For this reason, the church very often defines things as sin that are not. Pretty sure that if somebody eats a food they don't like, it's sin. If they drink a liquid they don't like, it's sin. If they wear clothes that they don't like, it's sin. But they ignore the things that are sin. 
When a man's heart is full of envy, when someone's full of hatred, when somebody has wrath and malice towards other human beings or will not walk in forgiveness, we overlook those things all of the time. But if somebody drinks caffeine, if somebody wears sleeves that don't touch the edge of their palms, oh, that must be sin. The reason that we've redefined what sin is is because the church is so captive to it. So it's made up its own rules. I know people that are more offended that somebody would cut their neighbor's grass on a Sunday thinking that it violates the Sabbath than they would be that they had not forgiven someone for 10 years. The Sunday is not the Sabbath. And doing good on the Sabbath doesn't violate the Sabbath. But the church seems incapable of making such distinctions. Perhaps it's because there's a plank in its own eye. In Acts 12, we see a perfect portrait of somebody who was given a divine right to rule. Acts 12, verse 1. It was about that this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Who is Herod king of? Did y'all go to sleep? Who is Herod king of? Who is Herod king of? Why are y'all so quiet? What's wrong with you? If we're at a football game and somebody asked you a question, would you go, football? Who is Herod king of? We're small enough that I can come sit next to you and ask you to finish the message if you would like. He's the king of the Jews. Now, Herod's father, Herod's grandfather, Herod the Great, was in Edomian. The book of Deuteronomy says that Edomians, Edomites, cannot enter the assembly of the Lord until the third generation. But this Herod, this Herod is the fourth generation. He's allowed to rule, and he's now in power. But what does he do with the power that he has? He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. The king of the Jews puts to death an apostle who is known for his love, known for spreading the unadulterated power of God. This man was supposed to have had knees that were deformed from the hours he spent in prayer. And Herod killed him. He proceeds next in verse 3. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. He's not only taken out James, one of the pillars of the church, one of the inner circles that was on the Mount of Transfiguration, but now he's going after Peter. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What is the unleavened bread for? Why, why, why do we need bread that is unleavened? During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, men and women who loved the Lord would take a menorah of God, the seven-fold lampstand of God that symbolized His Spirit. The mother would have hidden little pieces of leaven around the house to teach their children. The father because it was his responsibility to be led by the Spirit of God, would hold up the candles of God, the seven branches that symbolize the full manifestation of his character and his spirit. And they would search the house together on their hands and knees and remove any piece of leaven that was there. It symbolized God's Holy Spirit coming into you and weeding out any little bit of sin that might be in you. And this is the time that Herod chose to kill James and imprison Peter. Do you think that could offend God? It seems to have offended God a great deal. Look at verse 20 of chapter 12. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured the support of Blastus. That'd be a great name for a kid, wouldn't it? Titus Maximus Blastus. We have to put that one on the list. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, By the way, what color are royal robes usually? Scarlet or purple. 
sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of God and not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. The worms that ate him are the same word, are the same worms that the Old Testament calls tola worms. This brings us to man's problem. Man's problem is that we're being eaten from the inside out by sin. How many of you would be happy to make a 30-year contract with someone in your neighborhood to buy your house with no pencil, no paper, no lawyer, no notary, and no witness? How many of you are just looking for the opportunity to do that? Not one hand goes up. How many of you, if you bought a new car and someone in this room said, I'd like to borrow it for a year, would have no problem with that. See, sin is so deeply ingrained in our nature that we're also mistrustful. Sin is so deeply ingrained in our nature, it's what we expect of each other. And very often people rise to the expectation that you have of them. You know, God is so merciful. I mean, I don't know how old Herod was when this happened, but he got away with the murder of James for a time. He got away with the imprisonment of Peter for a time. But sin reached the place of judgment when he allowed people to call him a god. You ever watch TV and seen the things that people do? It's incredible. I mean, it is incredible and you wonder. I don't know whether their sins are trailing behind them or their sins have gone ahead of them and have reached the place of judgment. But every once in a while, you can feel something happen that you go, that's really dangerous what you just did. You know, the people didn't see the worms, at least not according to Josephus. Josephus writing about this event says that while Herod came out in his royal attire, the people were so impressed with him that they said, this is the voice of a God, not that of a man. And he, he willingly accepted that. And then it seemed as if he had a stroke or a seizure. That's what he said. How crazy is it that people can look at someone and say, this looks like a God, when it's really a man who's being eaten from the inside out by worms. But they looked at a man who is God, Jesus the Christ, and esteemed him not. How is that possible? Could it be that what is highly valued among men is despised by God? And what is despised by men, is highly valued by God. Is that possible? Josephus said three days it took, and the worms that were inside of him worked their way to the outside, and it became visible to everybody what had been going on all along. Oh, you can say that's disgusting. Sin is gross. Sin is terrible. Sin is not just terrible, because you're not supposed to do it. Sin is terrible because what happens to other people as the result of it. Have you considered that your sin cost the king of kings his life? Have you ever considered that your sin affects people besides you? Ask Aiken's family. You know, they had to kill even Achan's livestock to purge sin from Israel. Poor donkey out in the field. It's like, I didn't do nothing. Wasn't me. What had happened was his wife, his children. We suffer from our sin. We suffer from other people's sin. But that's not all the Bible tells us. In fact, the Bible does pronounce a curse, and we should go ahead and read it. We should look and see what the result of sin is. But that's not all the Bible does. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 28. If you're looking at the titles in your Bible, Deuteronomy 28 starts with blessings for obedience. Around the 15th verse, it says curses for disobedience. Could it really be that simple? 
that when we obey God, good things happen. And when we do not obey God, terrible things happen. Could it really be that he set life before us and he also set death before us and he gave us the choice? The man who lives as led by the Spirit of God, he's a son of God and he'll inherit the things of God. But the man that lives in rebellion to God's Spirit, he has nothing ahead of him but curses. One of those curses is in the 39th verse. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because the worms will eat them. Of all the kind of worms that come to eat your stuff when you're disobedient, can you guess what kind of worm comes? The Tola worm. The Tola worm was a symbol of sin that would come and devour your things because you were being disobedient to God. What an interesting twist this is about to take. Turn with me to Isaiah 41. Say there when you were there. If you're not awake or your neighbor doesn't look awake, slap them in the shoulder and say, this is about to get good. All right, say it anyway. This is about to get good. I've noticed that many times in history, people can keenly put their, put their finger on a problem, but very few times do people have the solution to the problem. Everybody likes to lament, but nobody likes to actually fix the problem. We serve the kind of God that saw an unfixable problem in the human race, and He said, I'm here to help you. And in Isaiah 41, one of my favorite passages, starting in the 13th verse, For I am Yahweh, your God, who takes hold of your right hand, say my right hand, and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Somebody say that's good news. If the God of the universe will reach down and take you by the hand and say, don't be afraid, I will help you. What is the only response you should have to that? Yes, sir, and trust him enough to do whatever he says because he's holding your hand. Do not be afraid, oh worm, Jacob, oh little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. In the same passage that God says he will help Jacob and he calls himself Jacob's Redeemer, he says, Jacob, you're no better than a little bitty sin worm. You mean he knows your condition and he's willing to help you? Yes, we don't have a willingness problem on the Lord's part. On the Lord's part, he's parted the heavens and already walked among us. On the Lord's part, we don't have a willingness problem. But here we come back to man. The sun obeys God when he speaks. The moon obeys God when he speaks. Light and darkness came into being because God spoke them. But we have the audacity to look at God who is reaching down, knowing our condition and saying, I will raise you up and go, not ready yet. Because I love my sin. Look, I'm covered in a beautiful worm vest. If it looked like worms to you, If it was disgusting like worms to you, would you want to be covered in it? You wouldn't, would you? I remember when Judah was just a little bitty boy. He had on a hat that said Old Navy. Y'all know that store? We pretty well are Walmart people now. But back then we could still go to Old Navy. We put a hat on him that said Old Navy and it happened to be blue. Now Judah was a very literal kid. This was a problem. Some of you have children like this. And I said, Judah, I love your old Navy hat. He goes, it's not old, it's new. I said, no. It's an old Navy hat that happens to be blue. He says, no, Dad, it's new. I said, son, you're going to have to trust sometimes Dad just knows things you don't know. When the Lord tells us not to do something or tells us to do something, it's because he knows things that we don't know. Tell me, when you're 14 or 15 and you were in the back seat of that car, did you have any idea the mark that it would leave on your life? When you first ingested a mind-altering substance, did you have any idea what it might do to your life? 
When you first slammed the door in anger and walked out on that relationship, did you have any idea what it would do to your life? See, he knew those things before it happened. He knew that. And all he was ever trying to do was spare you pain. The same God who says, I will redeem you and I will help you, acknowledges your condition. But we don't acknowledge our condition. When you ask people, how do you stand before God? They invariably reply with, I think I'm a pretty good person. The way God addresses him when he calls himself redeemer is to call Jacob a worm. See, worms need saving. Sinners need to be saved. And once you've been saved, you know it because there is a radical transformation in your character. It changes so totally that the Bible says all things are new. How about this? Let's put Isaiah 1 and verse 18 on the board. Now go to your Bible in Isaiah 118, but we're also going to look at the board. Because I have in it for us the original words. So Isaiah 118 in the NIV says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. It's such an interesting thing. I've highlighted these words for you on the screen. Though they are like scarlet, is sawni. That is the indelible ink that comes from the tola worm. But he goes on to say, though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. That's the worm itself that represents the devouring sin that is in your life. By the time you get to the 20th verse, he's even using the word devour. Can you see that on the screen? In Hebrew, if you really want to emphasize a point, you can do it through poetry. And you give one line, and it says something. And then the second line says essentially the same thing, but in stronger terms. You find this early on in the book of Genesis, a man named Lamech who uh, kills a young man for wounding him, who injures uh, or... uh, who attacks a young man for injuring him and kills a young man for wounding him. It's the same thing, but by the time you get to the second line, you really feel the impact of it. He's saying, hey, if you got a little bit of that ink on you, I can make you white. Hey, if you are a worm yourself, I can make you white as snow. What's the only thing that it requires? If ye be willing and obedient. What does it take to be willing and obedient? I got to tell you, this was such an interesting thing. In ancient Israel, from the time they left Babylon, they began collecting the sayings of their forefathers that makes up something called the Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of teachings about what happened in Israel and what the sages said about the scripture. And in the Babylonian Talmud, a tractate that is called, hear me young people, Shaba. (laughs) In a tractate called Shaba, in a section called Folio 86, they said something happened every year at the temple. Every year when the, the lamb came forward for the day of atonement, they could take a cord, and dip it in the ink that came from a tola worm. They could then walk over to that scapegoat, the Azazel, and they could wrap that cord around the top of its head and press it onto the top of its head, and the high priest would pray and confess the sins of the Israelite people over that goat, and then they would send the goat outside the camp. Then they took that cord, that left the mark on top of his head, kind of like a crown of thorns, probably left marks on Jesus' head. And they went and they nailed it to the temple door. And what the Babylonian Talmud says is on the third day every year that cord turned white as snow. The closest thing you had to permanent ink in the ancient world was the dye that comes from a tola worm. 
It'd be like coloring something in a Sharpie marker, setting it on your Bible in the third day. It was white as snow. They saw it every year until the year 30 AD, 40 years before the destruction of the temple at the time that Jesus was killed. Now, the reason that I bring all of those things up starts right here. Can we say that the human race is worm-ridden? Can we say that we've been more than stained with the ink? We actually became the thing. We were sinners. That's what the Bible says about us. It still says it about some of you. How do you go from being ink-stained? How do you go from being sin-producing? The Tola worm produces the ink. Being a sin generator. By the way, while we're talking about that, have you ever noticed in private schools or public schools or daycares or after school care, it makes no difference? If you, you see a kid that is not doing well and you ask his parents why he's not doing well, they say, little Johnny, little Susie is just in with the wrong crowd. They're not responsible. It's those other kids. Well, what if your little Johnny or your little Susie is the wrong crowd? Then are they the source of generating sin? Because that's what the Bible says about an unregenerate man is that he produces sin. What would you do with something like that? What would you do if there was a worm in here crawling across the floor? Matthew, what would you do with it? I'd squish it too. Turn with me to Psalm 22. How many of you have read Psalm 22? Psalm 22 is one of those that maybe because of its proximity to Psalm 23, which seems to be the only scripture that missionaries took to certain countries. But Psalm 22 tends to be a favorite for people that love the word. Maybe it's because it opens with phrases that immediately bring you in your thoughts to the crucifixion of Jesus. Psalm 22, starting in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. We hear this being said as a Psalm of David in 1000 BC, but they were the words of Christ in the first century A.D., a thousand years before the event, David prophesying as the Christ cries out in a most unusual way. How did Jesus teach us to pray, by the way? Who can do those for you? Anybody ex-Catholic in here? Our Father. Father. Why didn't he say our God? It implies relationship. In the Newer Testament, the overwhelming Evidence is that when Jesus prayed or spoke to his father, he called him father. Lost men speak of God. They often speak of God in terms of cursing. They stub their toe. They might say God something or another. They step in something. They might say God something or another. But when you're in relationship with him, when your character has changed, he's not a distant deity anymore. He's not far from you. In fact, the thing that you feel is very close and familial. And he becomes father. Why then does Jesus on the cross say, my God, my God? You never find him pray that way anywhere else in all of the scripture. While you're pondering that, look with me at verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You remember in Matthew 27, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they said, I think he's calling Elijah. Let's see. Wait, wait, don't do anything. Let's see if God comes to save him. That was prophesied about a thousand years before. How about in verse 12? Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. Does that sound like a pleasant experience? My heart has turned to wax. 
It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You remember that they gave him wine vinegar on the cross? Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. About verse 18. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. You can find that in John 19, 24. These things happen to the Christ. Why is it that he cries out, my God, my God? Why does he not say, Father? It's an interesting thing. Perhaps it's because of verse 6. In verse 6, he says, but I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults shaking their head. How is it that the king of the universe became a man and then not just any man? He took your place on a cross and became the worm that represents sin, a Tola worm. You know, it's one thing to die. It's another to die in an excruciating, agonizing way. But I don't think those things begin to touch the cry of Jesus Christ separated from his Father for the first time and saying, my God, my God, you've left me. He had never felt that before. When you're in the middle of worship and you get your heart right with God, and you feel his approval, it's like he put his hand on you for a second. Everything is right in the world. I mean, you could be dying, but in that moment, you're more alive than you've ever been. He lived like that every day. That's all he ever was. And in the moment on the cross, because of our filthy sin, he takes hold of our right hand and says, listen, worm, I'll be your redeemer. It's literally, stick out your hand, Nolan. It's literally like saying, I see that you are in sin. I see that you are destined for death. Stand up, worm. I will take your place. Nolan, would you let me take your place? You wouldn't, would you? I wouldn't either. The king of kings took the cross that was meant for you. He took the cross that was meant for you and he became the most disgusting, vile, sin-producing thing for those few hours on the cross. That's hard to even think about, isn't it? We can talk about the passion of the Christ and the agony of the whip. The whip was not the agony, friends. I mean, that was terrible. The agony was the one who knew no sin was made to be sin. Or Galatians 3.13, He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Tell me, how serious is that? But He didn't pick just any kind of worm. He picked a total worm. Now, in the ancient world, and even today in places like India... You know, it's an amazing thing. I have a friend named Raja Israel, and Raja's in his mid-60s, and the man's a walking encyclopedia. He's a little bitty brown guy that speaks with a perfect British accent. It's funny. And he's got a certain swagger about him that is just classy. I don't know how to say it. And everywhere we go, he can look at a flower. He can look at a bird. He can look at a certain mountain range. He can look at a certain kind of rock formation. And he can tell you something about it because he hasn't spent his life pouring over television sets and listening to radios. He spent his life engaging the world that he actually lives in instead of trying to escape from it. And so Raja often knows things about agriculture that I don't know. He often knows things about horticulture that I don't know. He definitely knows things about livestock that I don't know. I know how to eat cows. That's about it. In the ancient world, this word was chosen for a reason. 
Because the very same thing that produced sin, the very same thing that produced die, that shockingly at the same time the worm symbolizes sin, what what it produced symbolized redemption. How, How could you wrap your mind around that? Well, it turns out that the Tola worm attaches itself to a tree. In its life cycle, it finds a tree and it affixes itself. One ancient writer said it impales itself. And there while it's dying is when it gives birth. See, the Tola worm affixes itself to the tree when it is pregnant. And when it dies, it actually produces life. Are you feeling me yet? It leaves a crimson stain on that tree. They take those leftover tola worms and the stain that they left on the tree, and that's how they made the redemption garments for the temple. Could we put slide six on the screen? This is the Latin name for the tola worm, Coccus elysius. Coccus turns out as scarlet. Elysius is a dare, it, it has no meaning really, but it comes from a word illicit. I put illicit in the Google search engine today because when you don't know something, you Google it in this generation. Can we go to the seventh slide? Can you see? I wrote, how do you say it is finished in Latin? Illicit. When Jesus had affixed himself to the cross, his death brought you life. And in bringing you life, the last thing that he cried out, it is finished. Your sin is supposed to be finished. The transformation in your nature is supposed to be finished. Your old life is supposed to be finished because he gave his for yours. And in giving it, he wraps us in garments of redemption. He clothes us with Christ. And if he clothes us with himself, oh, let's not stain his garment. Can you say amen to that? We're going to take communion as a church. Now listen, before anybody gets up, I know the worship team's got to get up. Communion is not simply one more ritual. And it's not for the membership of this church. Communion is for those who believe that this work is finished because what he did for you, you're now going to live for him forever. This is a chance to proclaim I am sin, and he changed me into righteousness by becoming sin for me. That's our story. You can't say, I am sin, he changed me into righteousness by becoming sin for me, and then run out and live in sin. It corrupts the story. Put James 4.17 on the screen before we go any further. I'm going to say this in probably every service. If you are a Christian and you are defining sin as doing something that you shouldn't do, that brother ate meat, that's sin. That brother ate only vegetables, that's sin. That brother drank wine, that's sin. That brother will not drink wine, drink grape juice, that's sin. That brother wears Levi's and that brother doesn't wear denim. You need to grow up. If anyone then knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it, he sins. It is sin of the grossest order. To have someone perfect, righteous, become a worm in your place and set you free to spread their message around the world and refuse to do it. He told us, as you go, preach 
the kingdom. He told us, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. He told us to do the things that he did. I find it just remarkable that we can sit around and nitpick each other's dress codes and eating habits without having gone and done the deeds of Christ. Oh, church, when you take that communion, put Matthew 10, start in verse 5, and we'll move forward. When you take that communion, go to 6 and then 7. Seven. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Why is it near? Why would it be near? How do you get close to a kingdom? Can anybody standing right here be close to Saudi Arabia while you're right here? You'd have to find its embassy. And if you step in the gates of its embassy, even though Saudi Arabia is there and you are here, you're standing on Saudi Arabian soil. And when you speak to the people, even though they're here, They're representatives of Saudi Arabia. And the laws of Saudi Arabia govern that embassy. You're supposed to be a living, breathing, walking embassy of the kingdom of God. The reason you can say the kingdom of heaven is near is because you died with Christ and when you rose with Christ, you now represent His kingdom wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Surely His kingdom is more than food and drink. Surely His kingdom is more... What does he say represents his kingdom? Verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. When we take communion, don't just proclaim his death. Proclaim the life that you are going to lead when you walk out of here. We can no longer tolerate a Christianity that defines holiness by all the things that it doesn't do. It's not done an awful lot. It's not done so much that it's not done anything. Instead, let it be defined by, I do everything he tells me to do. And if I fall on my face while I'm going to do it, I get right back up holding his hand, him my redeemer, me a reformed worm going out to represent the King of Kings. Could you stand to your feet?